let me say thank you, first of all, to Pastor Jamie, Pastor Lisa, for even having me in in Grace Life. This is our, what, ninth year, something like that, and we just uh, count them as very dear friends and the people of this place. And it looks like West Virginia is really starting to respond to me for some reason. I was a couple of pastors here last night. We've already scheduled to come back to one of them, and we'll be next weekend, actually, with the pastor who was sitting over to the left last night, Seth Fleming from up in Canaba City. So... That'll be a Saturday night, Sunday morning. If you're free, come over Saturday night at least and, and be with us there. And the information, of course, is on my website. I, uh, I was telling Lisa I shared this across my social media platforms last night, and I think we had about 650 people watch last night's service, and some of the pastors that uh, I know from all over were just tuned in and watching. So uh, we affected a lot of people last night, and it's good to see many of you this morning. They're coming back. Thank God people are beginning to return. Hallelujah. And we're so thankful for that. I don't know how about you, but I like being around people. I mean, I appreciate the power of media, and I thank God for cameras. You know, when all this stuff hit, we had just built uh, a new TV studio about six months prior to that. And in that studio, we put a second set that we were going to use for webinars, possibly in the future or whatever, you know, we were thinking in terms of being the future, never knowing we would need it in six months to start talking to people from right there. Hallelujah. But anyway, when you're looking at a camera, you don't see people. And I like to see people after a while, you know, it's kind of like refreshing. I kind of enjoyed sitting on the couch for a little while, drinking coffee in my pajamas, watching through the different live streams. But after a little while, you think, I need to see me some people. Yeah. I need a little fellowship, hallelujah. And so how many know not only that, but you, you, know, you can sit there and receive, but you can't be a contributor from there. And I'm not just talking about financially. I'm talking about the body of Christ functioning. And so, I, you know, how I many we have something to give? But I was thinking even as the sister that led worship this morning is powerful. Thank you so much. But as we were worshiping, a lot of times we, you know, realize we come in and we think, well, this is the services for me. But it's really, first of all, primarily to worship him. And how I many you can't worship him and not receive something back from him? But there's something about corporate worship and corporate anointing, so we're just glad everybody is back. I need to get in the Word because I'm going to drive home today, and I've been going for more than just this weekend, so uh, we're going to drive home immediately after the service. So if you have your uh, device with you or your Bible, I'm going to read from Exodus 3, verse 17 and 18. Uh, this actually, what I'm going to share this morning, some of this is the theme that we will be using for our fall conference. We are uh, titling our uh, fall conference, Emerge, and uh, the scripture we are using is coming from Exodus, where it says, tell the people to go forward, and that's what we're going to kind of hit this morning. But Exodus 3, let me just get started a little bit this morning. I will probably not be nearly as heavy as I was last night. Hallelujah. 317, Exodus 317, Exodus 37. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. Under the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now let us go, we beseech thee. Say this with me three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. And again, if you would get me my next scripture, Exodus 5, 3. And they said, I'll let, I'll let you bring, and they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go, we pray thee. And he repeats that again. Three days journey. Everybody say three days journey. Into the desert and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence 
or with swords. And then again in Exodus 8, verse 27 through 28, he says, we will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he shall command us. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away Entreat for me. Hallelujah. Now, let me just stop there for a moment and build this before I, I move on to my next scripture. When I first, a number of years ago, the first time I ever come across a scripture, it kind of was like a key to me that when he said, let my people go three days journey. Now, how many know they didn't go three days journey? They went a lot further than that. But every time he would say that to Pharaoh, let my people go three days journey into the wilderness. Uh, I thought, well, maybe it's just, you know, maybe he only said that once. But he reiterates it several times when he goes to the king of Egypt. He said, let my people go three days journey. Now, to me, every time I see three days and three nights in the scriptures, the first thing my mind goes to is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Hallelujah. So how many know he's really calling the church to go three days journey. I literally could preach months on this because the scripture says, I will speak to you in excellent things, but the word excellent there means threefold things. And all the way through the scripture, there are patterns of threes. How many know there is a feast of Passover that we just celebrated last Sunday? And how many know 50 days from now will be the feast of Pentecost? Come on, somebody. How many know that's two days? Hallelujah. And then there, in, the, in the final month, there is the Feast of Tabernacles, where what was in uh, first fruits or the blade that came up during Pentecost is now fully mature. So it shows again the progression of our spiritual walk from being blood-bought, born-again Christians to spirit-filled Christians to going on to maturity. How many know he wants you to go three days journey? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Touch your neighbor and tell him, you need to go three days journey. Don't quit halfway there. Hallelujah. And I know what we did. I could talk about, as we talk about the Feast of Passover, as they came out of the Feast of, of uh, Passover and the blood was shed and they came to the Feast of Pentecost. How many know that that was a powerful experience for many of us? We've come out, you know, uh, you know we, uh, as I shared last night, you know, from, from, the, from the time they left Egypt until they enter the Promised Land, there are 42 stopping stations. All 42 of them are significant of something that happens in the life of the believer. And you could literally teach that for months because every time they stopped at some kind of a place, there was always some kind of an experience that was there. And as I've looked over that and studied this for many years, what I've found is that every stopping station of the wilderness journey, somebody builds a denomination out of it. And they think they have the corner on truth. We have the truth. Now, I mean, I'm just going to tell you right up front, I'm not infallible and I don't have it all. I can, but I just preach what God shows to me and then just I feed when somebody else is preaching. Are you hearing where I'm coming from? And I mean, it's not, uh, you don't, sometimes we, we, we fight over details, but it's not either or. But I could show you, and I, I did a little bit last night talking about when they left Egypt, they left delivered by the blood of a spotless lamb. They put blood on the doorpost of their house, and they took a lamb inside the house, and what they ate and fed on empowered them to get up and leave the bondage they were in. And so they leave Egypt, and they're just, they're, they're not, they're just outside of Egypt. Everybody's happy. They think Moses is the man of faith and power for the hour, and he's got, you know, uh, you know he's just an awesome man of God, and boy, we, we, we just love this church, and then... Yeah couple days later when the thump of horses hooves and the dust of pharaoh's chariots arose 
they turned on Moses, the man of God, and said, you're a baby killer. You brought us in here, out here to die because there ain't no graves in Egypt. Of course, they had the bones of Joseph, so there was at least one empty one. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. Joseph gave commandment concerning his bones because he, by faith, saw something when somebody else was going to be buried somewhere near the tomb of Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, by the way. Hallelujah. And uh, so he gave commandment concerning his bones because he saw by faith the greater day was coming, a greater exodus was coming, a greater, a greater exodus and restoration was coming for the people of God. So the people have come out of Egypt, blood-bought, they are born again, and most Christians, here's the, here's the Here's the mindset of most of the American church, at least. Just get me my ticket to heaven and give me the basic rules for what it takes for me to get to heaven. And then I got my ticket. I'm good. I'm good to go. But how many know the whole gospel is not just about how you get your ticket to heaven? It's about how you get what's happening in heaven to operate here in your life right now. And the book of Deuteronomy literally declares, I will give you the days of heaven on earth. That looks to me like God's intention for you is to give you the best life on the planet. And even as I read this scripture this morning and I was thinking, he said, let my people go. And God was speaking to Moses and he said, I am going to bring this people into a land that flows with milk and honey. It's a land that the Lord your God cares for, that the eyes of the Lord are always upon it, that he will give it its rain in its due season. Now, let me tell you something. If I would say to you, I want to bring you into a land that flows with milk and honey, there's a lot of stuff I could say about milk and honey this morning. But suffice to say that if I tell you I'm going to bring you into a land that flows with milk and honey, that says to me, I'm going to give you the good life. My intention for you is not so you live in 70 or 80 years of misery here and then one of these days you get to go. My intention was to bring you into a land that flows with milk and honey. I want to give you the good life. And he tells them, I'm going to bless your kids, your cows, and your cash when he brought them out. Come on. And they came out of Egypt with 400 and some years worth of back pay because they spoiled the Egyptians and God made them rich as they came out of the land of Egypt so that when Moses took one of the first offerings to build the tabernacle, he had to tell the people to stop giving. I'll try it over here. Hallelujah. <laughs> they were so blessed that Moses had to tell them, enough, man, don't bring anything else. I have never been in a meeting like this. Hallelujah. Where you got to tell them, stop giving. Hallelujah. We got more than we need. We got plenty. And the reality of it is God had so blessed the people of God. And I believe that's still God's intention is to bless the people of God. And, you know, one of the things that I, I, I saw recently, even in the Song of Solomon, hallelujah, I don't want to chase too many rabbits here this morning, but in the Song of Solomon, there is literally, again, a three-dimensional a three revelation that comes because in chapter 1 of the Song of Solomon, he's courting this Shulamite woman. This, this Shulamite woman is, by the way, uh, Solomon writes the Song of Solomon. It is the most excellent song. He also wrote the Vanity of Vanities, and when he wrote, writes, or, which is the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, how many of you read the book of Ecclesiastes? If you're not depressed when you start, you will be by the end of it. If you're depressed, that's not the book to go to. Because it is about Solomon, who is a king. Everything was saith the preacher, but he's a man 
who is looking for life, watch this, under the sun. He is looking for what is the essence of life under the heavens. And he said, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, and I will see what is the purpose or the essence of life for the sons of men under the whole heavens. And this man, in the first two or three chapters, does everything, tries everything, and experiences everything, but he said, this is all vanity and vexation of spirit, and there is no prophet under the heavens or under the sun. But when he writes the Song of Solomon, he's not writing the vanity of vanities. He's writing the most excellent song, and he's no longer looking for life under the sun. He's looking for life in the sun. Hallelujah. He's not looking for life under the heavens, he's looking for life, living it in the heavenlies right now. Come on, somebody. And he starts to talk about how wonderful that is in Ecclesiastes 1 and chapter 2. Everything that, to me, it is a powerful, powerful diagnosis of the human condition when you don't know Jesus because everything Solomon gives himself to in the visible, natural realm is what he was lacking on the inside. This has helped me help people for years, when I revelation of this years ago, when he said I, he gave himself to musical instruments, he got singers, he got wealth and peculiar treasures, he built houses and lands and vineyards. And what I began to see was he was looking for just how many of you could look at the human family now, and it's never enough. They're trying to get something that they think is going to make them happy, and it has a momentary high to it, but then they're just as miserable. Listen, man, I just was preaching in Miami and uh, in, uh, Boca Raton, Florida, and man, if you're driving a Cadillac there, you're in a low-grade car. These are some of the richest people you ever want to come across down there, but they're some of the most miserable people I've ever seen. Come on, because money and all that stuff doesn't, ne- come on, it's not necessary. Fame and all that stuff is not really what it's about. Come on, somebody. It is fleeting and it's all, it's all, it's all, uh, but what I began to see was that what Solomon was doing, he was trying to find something to fill the God-shaped void that was inside of him. So he got musical instruments and singers because he didn't have any melody in his heart. He was building in houses and land and bigger houses and tore them down and built bigger ones because there was no building of God going on inside of him. He got peculiar treasures because there was no treasure in his life. Are you all tracking with me a little bit? Hallelujah. He gave himself to vineyards because there was no wine of the Holy Spirit inside of him. He got all kinds of servants because he was hungry for power and thirsty for government because he didn't have any. Come on, somebody. He didn't have the government of heaven in his life. He gave himself to all kinds of stuff because he's looking for what is the essence of life. And so he comes to this conclusion. He said, so I was great. Big deal. He said, so I was great. But then he starts talking about in Proverbs, but I'm probably going to have a son who's going to squander everything I've built. And so all of this is vanity. In other words, I've laid it up and now somebody else is going to, are you all hearing where I'm coming from? And so what he was doing was he was looking for this essence of life under the heaven. But when he writes the song of Solomon, he finds the Shulamite woman. Hallelujah. And when he finds the Shulamite woman, He begins to take her for a walk in the garden. That's the first room, the outer court, if you will. If you could see this, if you could see it like this, Tabernacle of Moses, outer court, holy place, most holy place. Day one, day two, day three. Are you tracking with me? Three days journey. Pictures are everywhere. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. 
I'm a baby, I'm a teenager, I'm a full-grown mature son. Are you tracking with me? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And, and all through the scripture, uh, faith, love, and charity. Hallelujah. Uh, all of these three. In other words, everywhere you look, there's threes. And so he's t- he, he sees this Shulamite woman, by the way, whose name, the word Shulamite, is the Hebrew version or the female version of the name Solomon. So he finds himself, come on somebody, in a woman just like Jesus finds, puts his name on us. How many know we're the, come on somebody, we're the bride of Christ. And when he finds her, she's just in the fields as a working hand and she's totally Totally shocked that the king is even interested. I mean, you talk about uh, this would make an incredible movie, I think. It, you know, it's kind of like, you know, uh, the, the romance, it's the divine romance of the season. And he sees this young woman, and so she's like, Well, why would the king look upon me? I, and she says this, she said, I, I'm as black as the curtains of Kedar. My, my mother's children were angry with me, they made me keepers of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. What she's simply saying is, that's a lot of real symbolic language, but what she's saying is, why is the king interested in me? I'm not palace material. I'm a working class girl. I've been in the field and my skin is dark and black because the sun has looked upon me. In other words, I've got the marks of a works-based religious system, and I don't even know the value that I have. Let me try it over here. Hallelujah. Why is the king interested in me? I'm not worth much. They've told me my whole life how bad I am, how worthless I am, and then wonder why I act like I do because I finally believe what they said about me was true. But the truth of it is we've believed a lie, and the king comes to her. Hallelujah. And he says, let me take you for a walk in the garden. Hallelujah. So he takes her for day one for a walk in the garden. And they're in the outer courts. And he looks at her and he says, thou art all fair, my love, my dove. There is no spot in thee. I said, say what? This is how the Lord opened the song of Solomon to me 30 years ago. As he said that to me, he said, thou art all fair. There is no spot in thee. I said, God, I don't believe that. I don't believe there's no spot in me. I know my life. He said, I know you don't believe it. That's why you're acting like you got spots. But let me take you to the mountain of myrrh. Let me take you to the hill of frankincense. And let me show you where I took away your spots and your wrinkles and your blemishes. Now, this might be a little stretch for some of you, but everybody will preach the scripture, or they say it's scripture, but it's not scripture. They'll say, Jesus is coming back for a church without spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. Do you know that's not in the Bible? We've misquoted it so long that we think that's what. So we constantly think, well, when we get clean enough and spotless enough and washed up enough, then I'm going to be good enough to get married to him in some sweet morning way out in the distant future. And I don't know if I'll make it or not because I'm probably not good enough. I'm as black as the curtains of Kedar. But what the scripture actually says that they misquote is it says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might wash her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself, not having spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. Can I tell you where he got rid of your spots was on Calvary's tree when the blood that spilled from that tree splashed on a little woman who everybody thought Jesus Jesus had cast seven devils out of, and the blood of Jesus purged that woman to be a picture of you and I as the bride of Christ who's not going to get married to him. We're already married to him. Hallelujah. You're already his bride, and you're already in love with him. The new covenant is your marriage 
certificate. But if you don't realize, come on somebody, how, how, how much he loves you. I'm not getting to my text here this morning, but if you don't realize what he thinks about you. See, he don't care what somebody else thinks about you. He presented you to himself. Not to the world, but to himself. Hallelujah. He washed you. He purged you. He presented you to himself. He thinks you are to die for. That's how he feels about you. Hallelujah. You talk about a divine romance, and he wants to give you the world. Hallelujah. Amen. As a wedding gift, if you will. I'm telling you, there is something that happens when you understand. In Romans chapter 7 confirms that. He said, brethren, know you not that, that, uh, that, uh, that, that uh, speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. But if the woman with has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as that rascal is alive. But if her husband is dead, she's free to be married to another. But if her husband is still alive and she gets married to another, she shall be called an adulteress. And we use that to beat people up for, for years about divorce and remarriage. But the next verse says, but wherefore I speak to them. He says, but I'm talking about uh, uh, being dead to the law by the body of Christ. Verse 4, same chapter. You have become dead to the law by the body of Christ. That you should be married to another, even to him who's raised from the dead. So the second husband in Romans chapter 7 is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason he came to die was to get us both out of a bad marriage so he could be married again. I wish you could come on, help me. Hallelujah. He died so that we could be free to be married to another, even to him who's raised from the dead. Because we need to go three days journey, not just his death. Because last week we celebrated the fact that his death took care of my sin, past, present, and future. But we never seem to go one week beyond the death of the cross to preach the power of a resurrected life. That when he got up from the dead, he didn't get up from the dead to give you a death he got up to give you a life so that you could have the power of a resurrected life and Colossians chapter 3 says in view of the fact therefore that you've been raised with Christ the things above be constantly seeking and set your affections on things above and not on things of the earth beneath how many know that we have power over our affections I was shocked the other morning my wife listens to a uh, uh, Christian uh, radio station in the morning when she's putting makeup on and stuff, and hallelujah. And so, uh, you know, I, uh, as she's doing that, she, uh, the, this news was on. And they were talking about that, and I was absolutely shocked that it was even because anything like this even be considered. They were talking about considering a bill that would make pedophilia legal. And it was on the basis of the same stuff that they're basing a whole lot of other stuff on, and that is, well, they can't help themselves. Well, I beg to differ with the fact that you can't help yourself because the Word of God declares you can set your affections. How I many know you've got power over your affections, and your affections usually are motivated by whatever you're feeding them on? I'm going to try it over here. This may not be popular, but I'm telling you, I'm saying, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be against any particular group of people, but at some point we need to realize that, see, what God usually does, Romans chapter 1 tells us, he simply, here's, here's, here's what really wrath was in the New Testament. They kept on doing the things because they would not retain God in their knowledge, so God gave them over. In other words, here's the worst thing that can happen to you, is God just lets you do what you want to. He just turn you over. Come on. And just let you, let, because what happens is, then he don't got to do nothing. Your own sin reproves you. Your own iniquity judges you. I, I am so sidetracked, I may not get back to Exodus here. Hallelujah. But, but what happens is, is that God allows, the, I mean, he, he, he finally he just backs up and says, okay, listen, I'm going to, because repentance comes one of two ways. 
Either the goodness of God will lead you to repentance or you will keep on doing what you're doing until it runs out and you realize, wait a minute, this ain't working no more. Now, most of us came to God on that end of it. This ain't working no more. Now, I'm not trying to be vicious towards anybody because Romans 1, 2, and 3, I need to calm down here a minute, which we are now filming right now for television. Romans 1, 2, and 3 are the indictment of everybody and everything because he puts in that same listing not only sexual problems but hatreds and malices and then he indicts idolatry and all kinds of stuff where they wouldn't retain God in their knowledge but then he shifts gears and he says now you insiders you Jews you've had the covenants of promise and you point your finger at them but you're doing the same thing and the bottom line is he comes down in chapter 2 and he says we're all in the same sinking boat every last single one of us hallelujah and the law was added so that the transgression might be increased so that you would see that sin is exceedingly sinful and that at some point you will realize there's none righteous, no lot, even one, that the end of the law is there is none righteous, no, not even one. And at that point you're going to realize, I think I need a Savior. Am I talking to anybody in this room? Because from the pulpit to the door, we are all guilty of something. I said last night, somebody said, you preachers are preaching grace because there's sin in your life. I said, you better believe it. Now, I know that's shocking, but we want to make ourselves glow-in-the-dark preachers, but we all struggle with something, but we, we, we got more acceptable sins. <laughs> like we go, you know, hate or malice or strife or envy or divisions or jealousies and all the kind of, you know, there's all kinds of stuff people deal with. All kind of different addictions, man. When I started losing weight, I started realizing, wait a minute, I think food is my, my drug of choice. I turned to that for comfort. <laughs> Y'all help me a little bit, but we don't want to preach about that. Now, I'm not trying to put nobody down. I'm just trying to say everybody has got something somewhere that you come to a place that you start to realize, wait a minute, this ain't working for me, and it brings me to repentance. So I don't really get too shook up when people say, well, I'm just going to keep on doing this. I'm gonna do I just say, well, you know, you have an opportunity to save yourself a lot of pain and a lot of heartache by letting the goodness of God lead you to repentance and by setting your affection on things above and not on the things of the earth beneath. And he tells you from that posture you can put away from you these things. And he starts to solicit some stuff even under the new covenant and under grace that are proper behaviors because make no mistake about it grace is not a license to sin it is the very empowerment not to for the grace of God Paul said in Titus teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust so the grace of God becomes a teacher and where sin abounds that's where grace will super hyper hooper is the Greek word uh, hooper and it's the word we translate hyper so if you got hyper sin you need somebody to preach some hyper grace because grace is the antidote for sin it is not the cause of it People don't sin because you put, uh, preach grace. People sin because they haven't had their heart transformed. Hallelujah. But law can change people's behavior, and you can legislate and try to pass stuff. But if the kingdom could come through legislative rules and laws, then Moses had the best set of them there was. But you know what the end of that was? Nobody was righteous, not even one. They became good hiders, excellent Pharisees. I know I'm preaching all right. Hallelujah. They learned how to put on their precious Jesus face and fake it till they make it and live in misery 
misery. Come on, I'm going to tell you what. Most of the time, you don't have to convince somebody that there's something in their life. And you know what? We use all kinds of stuff to numb the pain and all that. But what he's simply saying is, I need you to let me just come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I need you to let me take the little foxes that are spooling the vine. And let me take you not only to the walk in the garden, but he opens the door to the second room. Are you tracking with me? And he takes her to the banqueting house and stays her with flagons of wine. He's whining and dining her. Now, they've already been for a walk in the garden. Everybody say, first day. But he takes her on a date. Hallelujah. It's a divine romance. And he takes her to the house of wine and to the banqueting house. He's going to wine and dine her, and he stays her with flagons of wine. He shows up on her porch with a box of chocolate-covered prophecies and a bouquet of word of knowledge. Come on. He's got gifts. Oh, y'all don't want to help me. And how many? that's where most of the church is at. They're still dating because they like his presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S. But his initiative is to bring his presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C. He's not just interested in dating you. He's interested in moving in. Hallelujah. I wish I could get some help here. He wants a covenant that will bring you into a marriage relationship where it'll start to, hallelujah. And you know what happens is that she starts to be stayed with plagues of wine. He starts to deal with the foxes that are spoiling the vine. And then he takes her to the third room. I believe it's in chapter 2. When he opens the door to the third room, after he takes her to the mountain of myrrh, the hill of frankincense, she starts to believe she is who he said she was. He opens the door to the third room and takes her breath away. And she said, behold, our bed is green. Now, if you've been here through this meeting, the first night I talked about the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, he told them to sit down on green grass because green is a symbol of the new covenant. Because the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. And you know why? Because the only covenant gives you any kind of rest to lay down, come on, is when you realize how much the work's been done. In Revelation 4, he said, I saw a rainbow. I mean, a rainbow is a symbol of a covenant. Remember Noah? And he said it was in sight like unto an emerald. It was a green. It was green atmosphere. It's the color of life. Hallelujah. David said, I will be anointed with fresh oil. But do you know that the Hebrew word for fresh there is green? Hallelujah. Some of us need a green anointing. We need a new covenant anointing. There is a fresh anointing coming, all right, but it's not a rehab hashing of Pentecost. It's a brand new anointing. Hallelujah. It's his third anointing, if you will. Hallelujah. One, two, three days. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. But when she opens the door to the third room, our bed is green because it speaks of the place of rest. It speaks of the place of intimacy. It speaks of the place of reproduction. And it takes her breath away. And she says, here's the whole theme of the Song of Solomon. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth because his love is better than wine. In other words, come on, if he took her to the banqueting house, stayed her with flagons of wine, come on, she got drunk out of her mind and passed out in his arms. You say, well, I don't know that she did that. Well, have you ever been to a Pentecostal meeting? 
Come on, a couple of weeks ago, first time I've been on the floor for a long time up at, up at Ravenswood when, when uh, Bishop was praying for me, man, I hit the floor. I looked over, Stu Farley was laying right beside of me. We got drunk out of our mind, passed out in his arms. Y'all want to help me preach, hallelujah. Oh, y'all looking at me funny. Some of you need a good drink this morning. Now I'm talking about a Holy Ghost drink. You need a sip of some new wine because some of you hadn't even come to the second day where you received the flagons of wine. But what she declares is his love is better than wine. In other words, there is a realm beyond the walk in the garden. There's a realm beyond the feast of Pentecost. And there's a realm, come on, where you become intimate in relationship with him. And you start to have this relationship with him. And how many know when you get in relationship with somebody that's truly an intimate relationship, you'll start to think like them, act like them. And come on, all of a sudden, two start to become one. Come on. Hallelujah. See, the word awesome, it has in it a we-some. Hallelujah. If you spell it like that with a couple of dashes, hallelujah. And it doesn't become awesome until you become a we-some. And I mean, when you first get married, you're still a me-some, but it takes a little while to break down that me-some until you become a we-some. I wish I could get some help in here. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I got, I got to tell you, man, I think the Lord puts us with people that are not just like us because he knows what we need. Hallelujah. I am compulsively sloppy. My wife is compulsively neat. Hallelujah. But after all the years of becoming a weesome, I still hang my clothes up now. I Come on, hallelujah. Help her wash the dishes. I still, are you hearing what I'm talking about? In other words, you start to realize that there are things that you start to become one in. And I mean, that's what it is. This is not a journey of something you are forced to do. It is a walk with him where you fell in love with somebody. And you want to please them. And you want to see God do some stuff in your life. And really, he, all of a sudden, the stuff that you had appetites for before start to leave in the light of this relationship relationship and it starts to drop off from you effortlessly let me say this as well see see God is interested in things that are sin in our lives not because of what it does to him but because of what it does to us and the people around us hallelujah and as a matter of fact he almost makes it on the same level when he says to them if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that you've got all against your brother go first of all be reconciled because what he's showing you is that your worship is not just uh, you know it's not just vertical it's also horizontal because what you do to the people around you and how you affect them come on somebody it's part of your worship to how you treat me because if you've done it to the least of these you've done it to me and Jesus ups that ante and starts to show that powerful truth there. Now, once he starts to kiss her with the kisses of his mouth, his love is better than wine. In other words, then he kisses her. And he says this to her in, uh, in chapter 5, I believe it is, chapter 4 of the Song of Solomon. I'm not turning here, but you can go read the whole book of Song of Solomon if you want to. But he said, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up. A fountain sealed. In other words, all he, and he goes on to say, all the chief spices are in you. There is so much here. He said, all the chief spices are inside of you. And he starts to name them. Come on, touch your neighbor and say, you may not look like one of the spice girls. <laughs> but you are to him. 
And in, in, in the book of Exodus, when God told them to make, make the holy anointing oil, he said, thou shalt make it a holy. There was five ingredients. And he lists those spices of stacti and myrononica and galbanum and different things that they use for that, that incense and for that anointing oil. And then when he gets to the Song of Solomon, he says, all the chief spices are in you. Everything you need for the anointing is already inside of you. Everything you need for life and godliness is already inside of you. You are God's garden. You are God's husbandry. Hallelujah. The garden you're looking for, come on, hallelujah, is not over in the Middle East. The garden you're looking for is in the bride and the body of Christ. He's in his garden eating his pleasant fruit. And then he begins to speak to the wind, which speaks of the spirit. He says, come north wind and come thou south to release the fragrance. The north wind speaks of the, the times when we just go through some things. I think we have just finished a north wind blowing for the last couple of years. But I think the south wind is starting to blow. Come on, somebody. And he's starting to, all of a sudden, the time of the singing of birds has come. And the sound of new life is everywhere. And God is saying to us, it's time to go forward. Hallelujah. It's time to move forward into what I'm purposing for you to do in this particular season and as he begins to release that wind on her even the good times and the bad times should be what releases the fragrance of what's in the bride of Christ in other words right now instead of being the problem on the planet church we should be the solution but we're more famous for what we're against than what we're for because nobody knows what we're for but everybody knows what we're against So we put ourselves in a position for war when we need to be in a position for love because the war is over. You can't fight and love at the same time. Come on, I need some help in here. Hallelujah. And you know what we've done? I, I, can, I, I hope this don't seem too graphic to you this morning, but I want you to just think about this. Here's how we've done the bride of Christ. She already thinks she's as black as the curtains of Kedar, but can you imagine Let's just, let me just set the little setting for you here. It's Christmas Eve. And the stockings are hung by the chimney with care. Are you tracking with me? Mama has done made a trip to Victoria's Secret. The smell of Chanel number no. five is in the air. And she's bought this special outfit to impress you on Christmas Eve. Y'all, come on, look at me and grin a little bit. Hallelujah. Some of you need some romance in your life. Hallelujah. And she walks out, and for the first time, you see her. And you look at her and say, is that a pimple on your nose? Man, does your breath stink. Man, your toenails look like they have been clawing a tree. Is that a spot on that nightgown? See, that's what we've done, is when the bride makes herself ready to come into the place of intimacy, and we get past the first and second door, we start telling her how bad she is. Can I tell you, you probably ain't going to see that outfit till next Christmas. And we wonder why folk have been disenfranchised in the churches because all we've ever done is point out their spots, their wrinkles, their blemishes, and their faults rather than tell them they're all together lovely. But see, he finally, in, in chapter 5, I didn't mean to preach the Song of Solomon this morning, but here we are. Then he says, 
Honey and milk are under your tongue. That's promised land stuff. Now, there's a, whole, there's a lot of stuff I want to say right here, but the reality of what he's saying is, let me say this first of all. He says, you have the ability to create a land that flows with milk and honey because it's in your mouth. You can speak it. This has really shifted some stuff for me because it's easy to fall into a complaint mode. And one of the major warnings in Corinthians to the church in the wilderness was, don't murmur. We strike up conversations with strangers over a common complaint. Now, I'm just as bad as the next guy, so I'm not trying to be, you know, we talk about, but you know, the first thing you know, you have talked yourself in to almost being depressed. But you have the power with your tongue to change the direction of your ship because the tongue is like a rudder. Hallelujah. And you can shift some things in your home, in your life, in your health, in your money, in your kids. Come on, somebody. Because honey and milk is under your tongue. You have the power to create the land that he's calling you to. So you can curse your past or you can declare your future. You can begin to say some things because once you start to speak from the dimension of what's inside of you that you have in you, uh, come on, a fountain sealed. Out of your belly can flow rivers of living water. Come on. And Jesus said, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And the words that we speak are spirit and they give, come on, they are creative. We have the power to create some things as we begin to declare them. You can create division. You can create havoc. You can create problems. You can sow discord. Or you can start to talk from the honey and milk that's under your tongue. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And in the, as he comes into the next chapter declaring uh, that he, I, he, he says, I have eaten my honeycomb. This is the king talking about her. He said, honey, milk's under your tongue. And then chapter, the next chapter opens, he said, I've eaten my honeycomb and I drank my milk. Now, i got to tell you, if he ate his honeycomb and drank his milk, the only place he could have got it in the Song of Solomon was underneath her tongue. Now, I'm not trying to be graphic. That's in your Bible. But that's a kiss. He finally laid one on her. Oh, y'all don't want to help me preach here. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And it takes her breath away to the point where the daughters of Jerusalem come to her and say, there are three score valiant men that carry the sword that run about Solomon's chariot. Is there not one among these men, these valiant men, that would be your love? Do you know there are 60 men around the chariot of Solomon, but there are 60 men in the lineage of Christ from Adam to Christ and what she, they're saying is what she's saying is there's nobody among the human family that came out of Adam that can kiss like he kisses and if he ever kisses you you will throw rocks at these other guys <laughs> ain't nobody like him come on hallelujah and then the Bible says that he knocked on the door and put his hand by the hole of the door and the Bible said that she was her bowels were moved for him and then she, 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 she says, I, she, this is her response. She said, I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have took my shoes off. How shall I put them on? And so her beloved withdraws himself because how many know he is not going to pressure you into anything? 
And so he withdraws, seemingly withdraws himself from her. Because she said, I have put off, I, it is not convenient for me right now. I have put on my shoes. How shall, you mean to tell me you want me to get up and get dressed and put my shoes on and my clothes on and come to church? I'm going to preach a little bit. Hallelujah. You mean uh, Saturday night? It's so inconvenient for me. Lord, you wanted me to do that, but I don't really have time for you right now. And it seemed like he withdrew himself. And she said, finally, she got hungry enough that she rose to look for her beloved. So she got desperate enough to search and to seek for him. Are you all tracking with me this morning? She said, I rose to look for my beloved, but he was gone. Now, let me tell you, I don't really think he was gone. I'll show you just a minute as we come on through here. She said, the watchmen that went about the city, they found me. Now, how many watchmen symbolize pastors? Well-meaning pastors. The watchmen that went about the city, they found me. They wounded me. They beat me. They took away my veil. Brother Howes, I'd come to church, but I've been hurt by church. Well, you were hurt at Walmart, too, but you keep going back there. You were hurt on your job, but you keep going there. It's excuses. I've been hurt. I've been wounded. And I don't doubt that you have been wounded and you've been hurt because all of us, you can see it from the perspective of how people have been wounded by well-meaning ministries. But I've got to tell you, man, if you've been on this side of it, you've been wounded, hurt too. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to suggest that the, the wounds and the hurts are not real and that they're not there. But because any of us who've been in a religious system any length of time, and sometimes even we, these guys that do some of the stuff that are constantly telling us how bad we are, are doing it because they think that's what they're supposed to do. We think that's our job is to point out their flaws. But come on, somebody. It's like your relatives coming for Christmas. And the first thing you do is jump on them and tell them everything that's wrong with them. And you can't even let just sit there and enjoy just a regular conversation because you feel like you've got to straighten them out and wonder why they ain't coming back till next Christmas. I don't blame them. Our kids don't even want to come around because we want to preach at them every time they come. Let me tell you, if we would express something other than that, you'd probably find them, hallelujah, on your doorstep all the time. Because we can do some stuff to edification. But this is what I'm after this morning. She says this then. She says, have you seen my beloved? Now, this is right after she said, the watchmen that went about the city, they wounded me. They, they took away my veil. They, I've been hurt. Have you seen my beloved? Have you seen my beloved? Tell him I'm lovesick. I'm looking for him, man. H have you seen him? I'm searching for him. I, I want... Hallelujah. I'm looking for my, I'm, how many know people are looking for love in all the wrong places? But here's the powerful point I'm after. She just got done saying, I've been wounded, I've been hurt. And her next word is, have you seen him? What she's really saying is, you can't hurt me bad enough to make me stop wanting my beloved. Because he kissed me. And I remember the kiss. There's a whole lot of junk in, in the game, so to speak. Hallelujah. 
But I've already experienced something. And that's when they tried to get her to substitute everything else. What about the three score valiant men? She said, no, 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 my beloved. And they said, where has your beloved gone? Because if he's that good, we want to seek him with you. And then the king begins to beckon his friends. Now watch this. She gets so desperate in her search for him that other people get inspired to look for him. I'll get there in just a minute. And she's searching for him until it just ignites something in them that wants to search for the same thing. And she's like, man, I am passionate for my pursuit of him. And, and, and he then, the king says, come, friends, come. He invites his friends to come and eat and drink the milk and honey. And I said, Lord, what are you saying here? He said, I'm only going to invite my friends to come to a church where there's milk and honey under their tongue. Where they're preaching a message that creates promised land stuff. He said to me, I'm only going to invite my friends when I've got a church that's got the right message in their mouth that won't push people away, but will connect them and draw them in and welcome them no matter how messed up they are. Come on, no matter how wrecked their lives are, that I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And I said, Lord, who are your friends? He said, my friends are sinners. Oh, y'all getting quiet on me now. I'm the friend of sinners. And the reason you ain't seeing revivals is I don't have a whole lot of places I can invite them to. Because what would you do with them if I brought them in? You just tell them how black they were and how unholy they are, and they're the curtains of they're not palace material. But you'll see Jesus sew up at the house of a publican or a sinner. Come on. You'll see him touch a leper, which was illegal under the old covenant. You'll see a woman with an issue of blood get to touch him, which was totally against the law of Moses. Come on, you'll see him wash feet when he's the greatest. In other words, what you, hallelujah. He begins to do some things, and then she starts to say this to him. She says, they said, where is your beloved that we may seek him with him? And what is your beloved that's better than another beloved? And she starts to describe him. She said, my beloved is white, and he's ruddy, and he has a belly that is blue like sapphire. His fingers are like gold cylinders that are set in burl. His eyes are like the eyes of a dove on running water. Hallelujah. I mean, all of this stuff is powerfully symbolic. But she's describing him from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. What she's doing is describing a multifaceted corporate expression of him because he's white. He's red, ready, come on. But he's also blue. He has a black stomach. Come on, somebody. I hope this is, well, I don't care if it is offensive to you, tell you the truth. Hallelujah, at this point, hallelujah. We got a lot of pictures of a white Jesus on most of the walls of the American church, but he probably was not white. I'm talking about the physical Jesus. He was Arab. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If that, that bugs you, you probably needed to know that. Hallelujah. 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 
Uh, years ago, I was on, on a TV program over in Baltimore, and they, they asked me, do you think Jesus is coming back as a white man or a black man? I said, I think he's coming back as a white man, a black man, and, and a red man. He said, because I, I think he's coming back in every man. Hallelujah. And, and what she begins to describe, what she's describing him from the top of his head to the soles of his feet, she said, this is my beloved, and he is all together. Watch this, all together. I said, he is all together lovely. And if he's not all together, he's not lovely at all. He's black, he's white, he's many-membered, he's red, he's yellow. Come on, somebody. He's got it. Jesus, we preach it, but do we believe it? Jesus loves the little children, red and yellow. Black and white, they're all precious in his sight. Hallelujah. Because what he does is he's so multifaceted that when you see him, hallelujah, and all of a sudden they said to her, where is your beloved at? That we may seek him with thee. But while she was describing him, while she's praising him, she's raising him. Hallelujah. And she said, all of a sudden she said, my beloved has gone down into his garden to eat his pleasant fruit. Hallelujah. And she starts to dawn on her that the chapters before that said, you're the garden enclosed, my sister, my spouse. And what she discovered is everything I've been looking for out there is already inside of me. Hallelujah. And while I was praising him, I was raising him. Hallelujah. God is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent. God, is. If we, we are more powerful than we know. We've got more than we can imagine. We've got the substance of the stuff that can recreate our world. In Genesis, it begins in a garden in Revelation 21 and 22. There's a garden with a river flowing out of it and a bride that has a stream coming out of her. Hallelujah. I'm telling you, that's God's full purpose of redemption. He said, let us go three days journey into the wilderness. Hallelujah. Now, let me just get one more scripture. I'm going to close here. Give me the uh, Exodus 15 verse 22. And I'm, I'm, no, no, I'm sorry, Exodus 14, verse number 14 through 16. Exodus 14, 14 through 16. The Lord, the Lord will fight for you, so hold your peace. Next verse. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift thou up thy rod and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Now watch this and follow me. They come to, they left Egypt one day journey. Build a, build a good Lutheran church, their blood bought. He's going to bring them through the sea, make Baptists out of them. At Sinai, he's going to make Pentecost out of them. Are you tracking? See, you see all this stuff? And see, let me tell you something. Be, be patient with the folks on the back of the line that ain't got to where you're at yet because just as sure as you crossed it, they're going to cross it sooner or later. When I first got saved, man, I mean, it was like uh, people in, in Pentecostal churches wasn't even talking in tongues. Now they're talking in tongues in the Catholic church. I remember having church splits when we went from the hymnal to singing stuff off the wall. I can remember the prophecies about the handwritings on the wall and everything else because we went to overhead projectors. Some of you don't even know what they are. But now they're singing worship songs in the Catholic church. What are you saying? I'm saying the line's moving. I'm saying the line's moving. 
Hallelujah. I said, I'm saying the line's moving. Somebody's going to go three days' journey, but somebody's on the front. The th- being the first fruit simply means you're the first one to get there and the first one to experience it. So be patient with everybody else's experience and don't look down on it. Don't try to rob them of it. Come on, let them have their revivals. But if it ain't floating your boat, maybe it's because God's calling you. I feel like preaching this morning. Maybe God's calling you like he did the woman in the Song of Solomon to the secret place of the stairs that you've come to the end of something. Years ago, I came to this place where I hit this wall and I thought, boy, God, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than this. Hallelujah. And I did it when I was in the Nazarene church. I did it when I was in the Pentecostal church and I hit a wall. Bam. And nothing's happening. And I said, Lord, what is this? And I, I marched around the wall. I smeared the wall with oil. I tried to run through a troop and, and leap over this wall. I, come on, I pulled down. I plucked up. I rooted up. I went to conferences on how to pull the wall down. And then I turned, learned how to bind it. Then I learned how to loose it, but the wall was there. And the Lord said to me one day when I was so frustrated, he said, son, I didn't bring you to a wall at all. This is not a wall. I brought you to the secret place of the stairs. I said, Lord, what are you saying? He said, every step has a riser and then a step. Wow, there's three steps here. (laughs) A riser and a step. And I was like Garfield trying to look up over Look up over the wall, straining to look up over the wall. The Lord said, I brought you to the end of one dimension because I brought you to the secret places of the stairs. Now take another step and go forward. Hallelujah. And just like God commanded the children of Israel here, he said they had come between a rock and a hard place. They just left Egypt delivered by blood. They think you're the best thing since sliced bread, the man of faith and power for the hour. But when the dust of Pharaoh's chariots and the enemy starts to pursue them because the enemy doesn't want you to get set free. And he really doesn't want you to get set free from religion because it's the reason God so hates religion is because it's the other woman. It's who we have relationship with. Again, Romans 7. That old covenant keeps you in a marriage to the old man until you realize that rascal's dead. I'm free to be married to another. I've come to the secret place of the stairs. So now they are, the Egyptians, the enemy is pursuing on one side and they got the Red Sea on the other. They're between a rock and a hard place. Listen, man, in the first of this year, the Lord began to speak this to me. And he said, this is where we've been in the American church. We've come to the place where we're between a rock and a hard place. Even, Even with this whole COVID thing and this whole issue that's all been going on for a season that we've been in. And we've been setting halted between opinions everywhere. And it looks like we get our focus on the enemy instead of the cloud that's covering us or the pillar of fire by night. Sometimes we focus on the wrong stuff. But the people, when they saw the thump of, of horses' hooves and the dust of Pharaoh's chariots, they turned on Moses. They said, I didn't have any problems until I came to this church. Now, it was the best thing since sliced bread day before yesterday, but now we ain't had no problems that we got here. And they got this, I'm going to choke you look on their face. And Moses said, stand still. See the salvation of God. Now, he probably said that bold and anointed with a little jerk on him when he said that. I've dealt with some crises that in in the eye of the people I'm dealing with, I look like I was calm, cool, and collected. But inside, I'm thinking, God, I hope you back me up. Hallelujah. And he said, stand still. But he ain't heard from God yet. He tells him, stand still. See the salvation of God. And then he goes in his tent. 
Now, what I'd have done is laid down on the floor and cried until the floor got wet, asking God, what are you? And that's what he did. He starts crying out to God. And so Moses cried out to God. And he's there in his tent crying out to God. And this is what God says. This is so, this is so cool to me. God says to Moses, wherefore criest thou unto me? I rebuke that. He said, wherefore criest thou unto me? I said, say what? You the one told me to take them on. You told me to take three million people on a camping trip, and these people don't like to camp. They are not happy campers. And this is what he says in this verse in, Je in, in Exodus 15. Tell the people. Or I'm sorry, Exodus 14. He said, and wherefore Christ thou unto me, speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. Tell the people to go forward. But lift thou up the rod of thy strength and thine hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Tell the people to go forward. Three days' journey. Outer court, holy place, most holy place. Walk in the garden, house of wine, the green room. Hallelujah. 30-fold, 60-fold. Tell the people to go forward. Tell the people right now, hallelujah, in the American church, this is the word of the Lord. It's not about time to back up. It's a time to advance. It's time to go forward. It's God trying to thrust us into another dimension of what he's calling us to. And even when they get to Jericho, come on, go ahead and stand on your feet because I'm going to close here. Hallelujah. And even when they get to Jericho and they finally get to Jericho, he tells the people, and he tells Moses, tell the people, here's the strategy for how to take Jericho. You've been brought out. Now you're about to be brought in. Now you need to shift your mentality from a going out mentality to a coming in mentality. Because you've come out of everything there is to come out of. There's nothing left to come out of. Hallelujah. Time now to go in. And he said, here's the strategy. You've got to get three million people going in the same direction at the same time with their mouth shut. That's the biggest miracle of the Old Testament. And I said, God, why did they have to keep their mouth shut? Got this in my notes, but I'm going to turn there. Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, Moses kept the Passover. By faith, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, he essayed to cross the Red Sea. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea. The moment they cross the Red Sea, Hebrews 11, nothing makes it in to the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11 that happened by faith. I said, God, why did nothing make it in for the next 40 years that happened by faith? He said, because when they crossed the Red Sea is when I gave the law. And Galatians 3 says the law shuts up faith, for the law is not of faith. And he said he gave the law, watch this, so that every mouth would be stopped. Tell the people to go the same direction with their mouth shut. Come on, somebody. Because he knows until they get the right message under their tongue, they're going to say some stuff just like it stopped them the first time. Them some big giants over there. Them some big, come on, hallelujah. Them some big walls over there. But I love what my son said about that. If there's big houses and big fruit, and big, or if there's big giants over there, it takes big fruit to keep big giants alive. It takes big houses for them to live in. It takes big cars. It takes big bank accounts. And then God said, all that belongs to you. So hallelujah, if there's something big over there, you might ought to think a little bit bigger. Hallelujah because they built it for you. I, I need some help. Somebody get happy with me this morning. But then he said, tell the people to go forward and tell them to march around the walls. 
for six days and on the seventh day they're going to go around there seven times so they marked day one. Oh boy we're gung ho we're ready to go it's like a building program at church everybody's on board three months later it's the pastor and his wife and kids working on it hallelujah day two boy we're still gung ho day three my feet are hurting day four this ain't working day five I'm tired man the same old same old ain't nothing happened here day six God where are you at I mean you're thinking how many have ever walked through some of this stuff but on the seventh day they started to march and I don't know how you feel about it but I feel like I've been in this journey a long time and all my eggs is in this basket and something on this day has rose up and says to me I'm gonna see this through my life has been given to this and so I'm gonna keep marching I'm gonna shut up and keep marching hallelujah I said, I'm going to shut up and keep marching. Hallelujah. I want to tell you to touch your neighbor tell him that, but it might start a fight. Hallelujah. Shut up and keep marching. Hallelujah. And they marched. And on the seventh day, he said, when you hear the sound of seven priests blowing seven trumpets, shout. Because God's going to give you the city. I could take that to Revelation and show you seven priests blew seven trumpets. And the moment they did, Babylon fell. Hallelujah. And a new Jerusalem was dawned. Hallelujah. And the city was accessed and the promised land was there that had a tree of life in the midst of it. It's accessed. And then he says this, and I'm closing. He says, now go into the house. This is Joshua chapter 6. He said, go into the house of the harlot and bring out the woman. I want you to notice this. He didn't say go into the house of the harlot out the harlot he said go into the house of the harlot and bring out the woman I think that's been my assignment the last couple of years is go into the house of a harlot system religion and bring out the woman hallelujah and you know what happens in Hebrews 11 after it says by faith they crossed the Red Sea you know what the next verse is by faith the walls of Jericho fell and by faith, Rahab the harlot hung a scarlet collar cord in her window. And by faith, I'm glad he didn't put a glow-in-the-dark preacher there. I'm glad he didn't put some saint. He put somebody everybody thought was disqualified. Hallelujah. He said, by faith, she received the same promise because she hid the spies. Hallelujah. And her and her house was saved. Hallelujah. I believe the prophetic word of the Lord. I wish I had recorded this myself this morning. Hallelujah. But the house of the harlot has been invaded and God is calling the woman out. And I hear this loud and clear from Revelation. Tell her, come out of her, my people. I'm not talking about leaving buildings. I'm talking about leaving the wrong covenant and the wrong, come on, the religious stuff that keeps people bound in a harlot system because we're going into the house to bring out the woman. Oh, it's an exodus. And if you didn't get here through the week, you can go back and watch the videos because there's an exodus paradigm all the way through the scripture. But it's not just about coming out. It's about going in. And even as they got to Jericho, God began to tell them, listen, circumcise this next generation because there was a whole generation that came out of Egypt that were not circumcised. And the Lord said to me, what I'm speaking of there is not circumcision in the flesh. I'm talking about in this day, I'm going to touch the next generation and I'm going to circumcise their hearts.
Because once you circumcise the heart, then everything we do comes from a true work of the Spirit in our lives. I've been way too long this morning for Sunday morning. Come on, reach over and grab somebody by the hand. Let me pray. Hallelujah. Father, I thank you this morning. Hallelujah. That you are calling us to a three-day journey. And so we rise up today and in the midst of all of this, while we silence the noise of an old covenant paradigm, we release the sound of a ram's horn this morning. We blow a trumpet of a ram's horn, a ram's horn that comes from the death of a male lamb. We preach a message through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation. For in it is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith. So we set the trumpet to our lips and we sound a long, loud blast and we hear a shout arising from the midst of your people as walls, walls come tumbling down and we take our possession. Hallelujah. Would you take just one minute and shout as loud as you can, hallelujah. As Pastor